kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What's going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 503. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're tackling Umberto Lenzi in the company of Patrick J. Bromley from F This Movie. And I've been listening to this man on podcast for a while now and following his website from a distance and following his reviews. And I know we share a lot of similar tastes in genre entertainment, but we also have similar friends like the great Rupert Pup. A.K.A. Bob Freelander, A.K.A. Brian Saar. So this is long overdue, bringing our two sites uh, colliding together. But Mr. Bromley, welcome to Wrong Real. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm a fan of the show. Yeah, this is the first episode that I'm recording since the coronavirus crisis really erupted in our faces, which feels eerily appropriate given at least one of the movies we'll be ta- discussing today. But yeah, kind of prescient. Yeah, but when we're not on uh, under complete lockdown, who are you? What do you do? Tell us a little bit about F This Movie, your website, your podcast, for people out there who might not necessarily uh, know your content yet. Uh, I'm a writer and podcaster from Chicago, run a website, fthismovie.com, which sounds like we make fun of movies, but it is not a site where we make fun of movies. Uh, our tagline is movie love for movie lovers. We are passionate movie fans who, uh, like you, tackle a pretty wide range of films. I tend to specialize more in the kind of nerdy genre stuff because that's the stuff that gets me going. But uh, we have people on the site that write about, you know, the 50 greatest movies ever made and and all kinds of uh, more highbrow stuff than the Albert Pune movies that I tend to write about. So um, and then we release a weekly podcast. Sometimes we cover one film. Sometimes we cover kind of a, a broader topic. Uh, we recently did an episode where we covered 10 direct-to-video John Travolta and Nicolas Cage movies, oh, which wow. was kind of an epic, yeah. <laughs> we watched five Travoltas and five Nicolas Cage. Um, and lived to tell the tale. And lived to tell the tale. Well, the 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 my friend Adam, who I recorded the episode with, one of his favorite actors is John Travolta, and my favorite actor is Nicolas Cage. And so we were exposing one another to some of their direct-to-video work. And 
liked most of them, the the ones that we talked about. You know, we chose our favorites to talk about. We didn't choose the the worst of the bunch. But uh, yeah, that was a really fun show to do. Yeah, I think the first episode with you that I ever heard might have been last summer. I remember you and Brian were cooking up like a a, basically like a hypothetical or fictional horror marathon. And I even kind of stole some of your questions and ideas. And I was asking people some of the same questions on wrong reel in the weeks afterwards. But uh, remind me, what was the, the, the format of that episode where you were picking trailers and the order, it's like an all night horror marathon, but it was a particularly good episode. Yeah. That's when I was fortunate enough to be a guest on the pure cinema podcast. Uh, they had me on because the new Beverly does a horror all nighter every October. So they had me on to do, we programmed our own fictional all nighters and we had trailers in between each of them that would provide clues as to what the next movie would be. Uh, that was, that was amazing to record. I was very, very, very lucky. Well, what I liked about it is that you brought a real scientific rigor to thinking like, it was not just about putting a bunch of cool things up on the screen. You got to really be aware of what you're building toward. If you kind of show your hand too early, then it's hard to kind of cleanse your palate for what comes next. So it requires very careful planning to sustain that intensity and enthusiasm. And I've never attended an all-night movie marathon, but I, a horror marathon, but I have gone to Buttonumathon in Austin back in 2013, and they did not use the same level of scientific rigor. It seemed like <laughs> Harry Knowles was just throwing whatever the hell up there that he felt like in the kind of chaotic order, and it really messes with you. So yeah, you got to have a, like a sense of crescendos and decrescendos yeah. and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's a, it's a science that I take very seriously. It's uh, I used to make a lot of like mixtapes for my then girlfriend, now wife, and I had a lot of rules for like how this needs to go and how it needs to build and what it needs to end with. And so I kind of apply some of those same standards to programming movie marathons. Now, refresh my memory, but did Umberto Lenzi, did any of his movies make the cut for your all-night horror marathon? Because obviously he's not like really a horror director, but he's got a few films that are in that overlap in that Venn diagram. Criminally, they did not, because most of his horror movies, as we will talk about, kind of fall in the cannibal subgenre, which is not really a subgenre that I'm into and certainly not something I would program during an all-night marathon. Yeah, because you might be, find yourself in a situation where you have to hand out barf bags like apparently they were <laughs> doing during uh, one of his, I think it was maybe Cannibal Ferox, where they're handing out barf bags at uh, at the theater. But, you know, it was a monster hit. People, people, like, people like gimmicks. Well, let's start opening up the conversation on Umberto Lenzi. He's one of those guys who I feel like was a around for every major genre trend in Italian filmmaking, whether you're talking about Roman epics or like sword and sandal epics or Westerns or Giallo or these really rugged, intense police thrillers of the 1970s. And I'll let you pronounce that subcategory or that subgenre. <laughs> <laughs> I always trip over my tongue. And then, of course, he eventually shifted into zombie films and cannibal films. So I feel like there's almost no subgenre of entertainment where he didn't at least dabble, but it seems like he had his greatest success with his crime films. But how did you first become aware of the great Umberto Lenzi's career? I think I really first became aware of him through Nightmare City because I'm a big horror guy. And uh, I think that was his first film that landed on my radar. And then it was just a kind of a thing where I got more and more into exploitation films. And in the process of doing that, you know, his films would pop up periodically. But it wasn't really until I watched one of the films that we're going to touch upon tonight um, fairly recently, honestly, that I 
was like, oh, there's something kind of special going on with this filmmaker and did much more of a deep dive into his work. Um, my knowledge of his work doesn't really predate like 1970. So he's got that period of kind of where he's just kind of a journeyman filmmaker doing, as you said, those sword and sandal epics or, you know, pirate movies, Westerns in the 19, late 1950s and 1960s. Some of those I know are available like on Amazon Prime. I haven't had a chance to watch any of them yet. So my knowledge of his work doesn't really start until his court sort of late 1960s, early 1970s pseudo giallo period the films that he made with carol baker it seems uh, like he and lucio fulci followed similar paths in terms of how it's that late 60s period where censorship started to relax where suddenly their imaginations <laughs> were unbridled and unrestrained and they really went berserk but yeah because fulci made tons of movies that nobody talks about from the late 50s and early 60s it's really like 1968 or 69 where people really start diving into his stuff but it, i mean but that's one thing that's so cool about the Italian film industry is that you have all these wonderful opportunities as an assistant director to slowly but surely hone your your craft and your skills working for other filmmakers and name any great Italian director nearly all of them worked for other masters at different points and I, I feel like there's something profoundly missing from world cinema that the Italian genre machine of those few decades has kind of atrophied and dwindled to such a degree because for I feel like for like 25 years there, there was it was one of the most exciting places on the planet for just good old-fashioned, low-budget, B-movie, grindhouse, exploitation films. Arguably, probably like the, the juiciest period of any country anywhere in the world at any point in film history. Oh, I completely agree. And the one silver lining is that it was prolific enough and enough uh, films were produced during that period that no matter how many I consume – and it's been a lot. There's always thousands more to see. <laughs> There's so many more like that, that I've never even heard of. And some of these labels, you know, some of these boutique labels like Severin or Synapse or Vinegar Syndrome, you know, they'll they'll announce a new title from a filmmaker I'm familiar with from a period that I know. And yet it's still a film that I've never heard of in my life. And uh, not so long ago, I think Severin put out a movie called Robo War which is like a, a complete predator slash RoboCop ripoff done by the Italians. And I was like, this movie was not on my radar at all, and I totally loved it. Yeah, we actually tackled it on Wrong Reel, and we did a Bruno Mattei episode with uh, Mackenzie Lambert. Mackenzie Lambert's a big Enzo G. Castellari fan and Bruno Mattei fan, so we've done episodes about both, but it seems like Bruno Mattei was the unofficial master of knockoff sequels and remakes that you don't really have permission to make, but he would make them anyway. (laughs) Right. And he's, you know, like uh, not the most talented filmmaker, but his films are always completely entertaining. Yeah. I was watching that documentary Eurocrime and they have this great graphic or this explanation toward the beginning of the documentary where they're saying how you would see this pattern happen over and over and over again, where a movie would be huge in Italy, whether it was an American film or an Italian film. And then you would get your unofficial sequels, much like how like Zombie was the unofficial sequel to Dawn of the Dead. And then if that was a hit, it would spawn like this entire forest of additional unsequel remakes and sequels, et cetera, and so forth. And it was just, you get this chain reaction where there was no trend that was too small for Italian producers to ignore. <laughs> and so they, they would, would leap upon each and every single commercial, commercially successful film and try to make some copies. And one of the things that I think is interesting about Lenzi is that he's 
rarely in a position it, it does happen every once in a while but he's rarely in a position where he's following one of those trends he tends to be i would say forging some of those trends um, cool. he he's he's kind of at the front of a lot of uh, some of those trends in Italian genre cinema, you know, including the cannibal movie, um, including the, I'm going to try to say it and you can just cut it out if I mess it up. Police, Polizia Teshi. I that think is, that is better than I could ever hope to manage. But I feel like people are still copying him. Even he had, in this interview, I was just watching before we started recording. He's like, yeah, Eli Roth. I like him as a filmmaker. I like him as a person, but he totally copied me with green Inferno. So. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, his, his, his movies don't feel I'm going to say they don't feel derivative. And then one of the movies that I picked to talk about tonight is a complete ripoff. <laughs> so uh, there are certainly exceptions I recognize, but I don't feel like he is somebody like a Bruno Mattei where he is just kind of going, you know, he's a, he's, he's a horse being led to water. He's the guy who is kind of carving out a, some new he's space. Like the water's for over there. Let's go. there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, let's start easing into some of your first choices because I love Giallo, but I've not seen any of his movies. And you pick – now, you're going to have to give people a little historical backdrop because some of these movies have different names in America versus Italy. And this first one you chose gets a little weird about which movie in his filmography is actually called Paranoia. So what, what, give us the baby steps into – Paranoia, the earlier version versus the one we're going to be discussing, which is also known as A Quiet Place to Kill. Basically, he made six or seven movies, all called Paranoia, it seems like. Um, no, he made a, a film called Orgasmo in 1969 that then was also released as Paranoia. 
uh, elsewhere in the world. And so then when he made a movie in 1970 called Paranoia, it had to be released elsewhere around the world as A Quiet Place to Kill because they had already put out an Umberto Lenzi movie called Paranoia starring Carol Baker. Um, I've not had a chance to see Orgasmo. I tried my darndest to secure a copy and I found one copy that was all in Italian with no dubbing and no subtitles. So Yeah, I, I tried to hunt it down as well. I even tried to look up scenes on MrSkin.com because Carol Baker is very easy on the eyes and made a lot of movies. I think she made four movies total with Umberto Lindsay when she was like the, the, the maid of honor at his wedding. They became very close while making these movies. But what I didn't realize until I was watching this interview is that he would sh- shoot different versions of these for the international versus Italian markets. You would always think, oh, if it's going to be playing in the U.S. market, that would be the more tame, kind of buttoned-up version. But at the time, Roman Catholic values were still such that he would shoot the more chaste version of the mm-hmm. sex scenes for the domestic market, and then for us, we would get the uh, the juicy bits. But obviously, yeah, in uh, a quiet place to kill, we get some pretty lovely erotic sequences. Which I, which I am always in favor of because I feel like the Italians, when it comes to their colors and their use of music, they shoot some of the most glamorous, just fetishistic movies of the late 60s, early 70s. And I almost feel like this movie, you could twist a few little moments and almost turn it into like the most killer James Bond film in terms of like the theme song and the, the driving of the race cars on these, like, on these crazy roads. And yeah, I, I really did enjoy the style of this and I feel like whether people like Mario Bava films or whatever the case may be a uh, quiet place to kill is a, a kind of this neglected little gem. And it's, it's interesting because if you start with some of the later Lindsay films, then to go back to something earlier like this, it almost feels like it came from his classy period. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I really dig this movie. You know, it's considered a giallo, but there's really only one murder in the film. Um, and, you know, I think nowadays we tend to associate Jollos with Jolly with body count uh, movies because they are sort of the proto slasher movies. So they tend to be about a series of murders. Like Bay of, of Blood and things like that. Right, exactly. And, and this movie, while it's considered Jollo, is really just more of a kind of an erotic thriller. You know, it kind of starts as a riff on Diabolique. Um, about these two women who sort of conspire to kill off their cheating husband slash ex. Um, and then it takes a turn about halfway through that I, I don't know if I should spoil, but it, I, it was... I mean, it's a 50-year-old movie. I feel like we're, we're well within our rights to spoil it. <laughs> um, that instead of killing off the uh, Jean Sorel character... Uh, they turn and murder the wife. And then the rest of the movie is sort of just about trying to get it becomes a Hitchcock movie about trying to get away with a murder. And I yeah, love I like those it's like sequences. a Patricia Highsmith thriller or something like that. Like I feel like it falls right. into like that Purple Noon category or Town of Mr. Ripley. It, it feels like it could be one of those kinds of films. I love the suspense of the sequences where, you know, they're dragging the ocean and trying to find this body. And we keep wondering, are they going to come up with it or not? You know, um, and then the punchline at the end of the film is pretty terrific. But yeah, I just I, I really liked how kind of I mean, there's there's some sexuality, there's some nudity, as you alluded to, but it's it feels restrained given 
some of the excess of his later work. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Compared to fucking uh, eaten alive exclamation mark. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is like, this is we're in PG territory, but I love the depiction of like the European male on this. At one point, the, um, Carol Baker refers to her ex as a typical European male. She says, selfish, amoral, and corrupt. And I just love how like the Italians, they, they were not making these movies for kids or the whole family or anything like that. These were movies for adults, adults who like adult drama, you know, stories about uh, VIPs or the very wealthy who have nothing to do with their time apart from just hang out and get a suntan on boats and plotting and scheming who they want to sleep with next. And I feel like that has been like sadly lost in a big way in American filmmaking, at least in terms of like mainstream Hollywood movies where you would see sophisticated thrillers starring like Cary Grant or, you know, whomever in like the fifties and early sixties where people were interested in stories about adults with an adult sensibility. And so I, I almost made me kind of pine for a bygone era while I was watching this realizing that sexually active, promiscuous kind of corrupt, decadent, wealthy adults used to be, really interesting material for movies to explore as opposed to everything being people in tights punching each other in the face. Yeah. I, I often lament like they don't really make movies about adults anymore. Um, and, and they were trying even as recently as like the early two thousands, but once the middle kind of fell out of the marketplace, um, there just doesn't seem to be room for those kinds of movies anymore. And so we get giant IP franchise, you know, um, expensive studio movies, and then we get kind of micro budget indies, and the the middle fell out, and unfortunately, the middle is where we used to get presumed innocent. You know, that's Absolutely. where we used to get uh, even um, the late '90s, uh, a perfect murder, which is a, a, an attempt to remake Dial M for Murder, and it's not an entirely successful movie, but it's literally exactly what you're talking about—just a movie about adults for adults rich, sophisticated people and sort of, you know, they kind of invent problems for themselves by sleeping around and killing each other. Absolutely. Like they've got a roof over their head, their bills are paid. So the only problems they encounter are ones of their own creation. But like when people talk about like date movies, like I don't want to go see some stupid, soft and fuzzy, sentimental, romantic comedy. I want to see a movie with some teeth. Like I started seeing a girl last year. We're still together. Their first few date nights at home, I put her through the ringer. I I showed her dead ringers. I showed her the piano teacher and I showed her bitter moon. I was like, we got to watch some adult <laughs> movies and if we can get through these then the relationship is probably going to be pretty strong and and so far so good she 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 was into all three of them oh nice all right yeah bitter moon that's quite the graduate course so <laughs> absolutely you got to take a few prerequisites before you're allowed before you're allowed into that class um yeah a quiet place to kill you know aka paranoia i think fits into it's not quite as psychologically complex as some of the movies you just mentioned but um, but it is very, again, just very entertaining. And that's ultimately the thing that I love about Lindsay is that the guy knows how to make an entertaining movie. And sometimes that gets lost, um, in, even in, in exploitation cinema where it's about including certain elements, where it's about being shocking, where it's about, uh, being commercial, in a way that responds to the times or the trends, as we were saying earlier. But I think, you know, you can watch a lot of exploitation movies that are 
just dull as dirt and and shot with zero creativity in a very perfunctory manner this is shot where the, every single shot is trying to be as gorgeous as humanly possible just whether they're driving down the road and she's wearing like her tight golden pants and he's massaging her knee but they're just trying to make it sexy and the, the movie sizzles as a result or like that amazing like swinging 60s dance party they go to with like the camera shooting up the girl's skirts like their panties and I was just like oh, this movie's fucking <laughs> wild it's like when you go on vacation and Europe in the summer or whatever this is the world that you want to encounter <laughs> you want to encounter yeah. the beautiful people misbehaving <laughs> my wife at least once she watched a bunch of these Lindsay movies with me and at least once per movie she would turn to me and just say so these guys were all perverts right <laughs> like, Absolutely. Well, yeah, basically. although he in his interview is very um I guess protective of his reputation and he, he says again and again and again he was not a pornographer he wasn't interested in pornography and he was actually kind of shocked and amazed when he learned that his male lead from some of his cannibal films was a porn star in the American market Richard Bola but he wasn't even aware of that but he made a movie with the <laughs> anyway so I think he like much like Russ Meyer he did not want to be a pornographer but he wanted to play out on that frontier right. and I think a lot of times people will mistakenly lump them all in together and I feel like they're they're operating in a very different space yeah he's he's somebody who seems interested in sexuality as a as a component of you know the human psyche but he's not uh, he's not really reveling in it I just watched uh, Mondo Macabro just put out one of his movies called An Ideal Place to Kill, not to be confused with A Quiet Place to Kill. <laughs> nice. um, and uh, that's one of those movies where they did alternate versions and there's a couple of like – they call them hardcore inserts, but they're not – one is a magazine showing a blowjob uh, that you see for about one second. One is like a quick kind of crotch shot. All of these last about one second. They were all cut out of the film. So in the widely released version of the film, it's a lot more tame. All that stuff is taken out. So even those moments where it's kind of where his films, you know, skirt pornography, um, that stuff all got taken out. Well, he had, apparently he would, became quite notorious with the press in the 70s because he had this phrase on the set where he would say, are you ready? Drop your undies, rolling. And I'm sure he thought it was very, you know, very cute and very charming, but apparently that got him in, uh, you know, it got him a lot of attention at the time. And it seems like he definitely excited controversy throughout his career, like especially with his cannibal movies where he would do them. Not because he was particularly interested in cannibals. Like with, um, I know with the Cannibal Ferox, he was in really dire straits financially and just needed to make some cash. He had a lot of back taxes. And then when the movie became this monster hit and all these royalty checks started coming in, he was like avoiding the interview requests like the plague. So he wasn't afraid to go play in a, a kind of a scary sandbox periodically if he needed to refill the coffers. But if you watch even like five minutes of his interview with him on YouTube, you see that he's just a delightful, energetic person who loves storytelling and loves working with actors, particularly love working with Hollywood actors who had fallen on not tough times, but were past the peak of their career and were more than happy people like Joseph Cotton or Henry Silver or Arthur Kennedy or whomever to go over to Italy and crank out some genre films, much like we see with... Um, Leonardo DiCaprio at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood right, he goes right. off and makes some spaghetti westerns and he makes one of those palika one of those you know <laughs> crazy crazy cop flicks and I, that was one of my, probably my favorite moment in the entire movie showing how that was a great refuge for actors when they fell upon when they fell on hard times in Hollywood. 
Yeah, for sure. No, I love Lindsay interviews and he's very open about being interviewed because almost every disc that I watch of his contains an interview where he's talking not just about the film, but about his career. And there's a thing with the Italians um, where they just, they don't hold back at all. And so they're so open about their careers and will not shit talk, but like a little bit shit talk other filmmakers or just be very non-politically correct when it comes to like, I didn't steal from Argento or Argento stole from me, you know, yeah. and you wouldn't get a Hollywood filmmaker who would ever say anything yeah, like they're that. They're much more circumspect. It. And I love right. the, uh, the, I mean, we'll get to uh, Tomas Milian here in a sec, but Umberto Lenzi was talking about like he made six or seven movies with him. And he's like, oh, like he was a marvelous actor, but uh, he couldn't drive a car. He couldn't get in a fight. He couldn't do anything physical. So it was, caused all sorts of problems. But also he was tripping on cocaine and vodka all the time. You know, mar- brilliant actor, but really difficult to work with blah blah so yeah he's not trying to protect anybody's reputations at all right right into some of these cop flicks because these were some of his most commercially successful films. He made a crap load. And I guess the first one on our to-do list would be Manhunt in the City, a.k.a. The Manhunt from 1975. Manhunt in the City is the movie that I kind of was referencing earlier when I said, you know, he never followed trends. He never did any ripoffs. And then I thought, wait, Manhunt in the City is completely a Death Wish ripoff. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in a good uh, way. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, Henry Silva plays a guy whose daughter is murdered during a bank heist. And then I think he's an engineer instead of an architect. But, you know, same difference. And uh, and that I'm not equating those two careers. Don't don't come at me. Architecture Twitter. Um, (laughs) Marcus Pence, the only architect that I know on Twitter. So. (laughs) Um, And so he decides he's going to set out and get revenge in much the same way that Paul Kersey does in Death Wish. Um, And Henry Silva shows up in a handful of Lindsay films. He's a guy that I am always excited to see in a movie. Oh, Um, hell yeah. He's so good, like in the Tall T and things like Tall T, which I discussed with our mutual friend Brian Saar. uh, That's a great movie. Yeah, I love that movie. Um, 
it's not quite as I don't think uh, quite as exciting or quite as fast paced or quite as sort of adrenaline fueled as some of the movies that we're going to talk about or some of his later police movies that he made with, as you mentioned, Thomas Millian. Um, but just as a kind of a crime thriller and as a statement on revenge, I thought it was really interesting. It, it really is just an Italian version of Death Wish. Um, minus some of the sleaze, although the, the sleaze didn't really enter Death Wish until some of the sequels. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you see the daughter being uh, molested in the second one, you're like, ooh, we are going into yeah. dark, depraved territory. But maybe before we do the deep dive on this and the second one, talk a little bit about the conditions on the ground in Rome and Milan in the 70s, because according to this interview I was watching, he, from Umberto Lenzi's point of view, the 70s for him was the most turbulent, interesting decade in Italy's history. And it sounds like Italy went through a period, and I'm sure um, if we had uh, Tony Stella on here, he could tell us all about Italy's chaos during the 70s, but it seems like the urban decay and the urban chaos of the 70s in Italy was particularly violent and corrupt with all sorts of political assassinations and terrorist hijackings. And the film started to reflect that brutality and unpredictability and then the unpredictability of that particular period. Yeah, it was a really dangerous time to be alive in Italy. And the films not only reflected some of the chaos in terms of the crime that was taking place, but also you know, present this image of what you have to do and who you have to become to survive. And so that's why we get some kind of fascist characters like Venucci in Manhattan, the city, or like inspector Merrily in some of the movies that we're going to talk about. Um, yeah, it sounds really, you know, from the, from the bit that I've read or, or seen in interviews, it really sounds like it was like the wild west in Italy in the 1970s, that it was just crime was really, really running rampant. It was a very violent time. Uh, and kind of a scary time. And it's amazing to me that Lindsay was not only capturing that uh, feeling in his movies, but also managing to shoot movies in this kind of environment. Absolutely. And making blockbusters out of them. And it should also be mentioned that Dardano Sacchetti, who wrote a lot of Lucio Fulci's best movies, he co-wrote this with yeah. uh, with Lindsay. So uh, once again, in terms of writers and filmmakers having various trends and periods in their career, obviously, when I think of uh, Sacchetti, I think of all these just incredible, supernatural, hellish demons and zombies that we saw in all the great Fulci movies. But he was pretty good at writing these kinds as well. And also, this, for me, this movie is absolutely worth watching, if only to see Luciana Paluzzi back in action, because she's my favorite evil Bond girl of all the Bond films. <laughs> she's in Thunderball. And people love to look down upon the Bond movies and how they depict women. I'm like, all right, well, you clearly have not seen Thunderball because she is ruthless and evil and sexy and so badass. And one of the coolest people within the, uh, the organization of Spectre that we ever saw in any of the classic Bond films. And here she is, boom, playing Henry Silva's ex-wife. And she's not as, I guess, getting to have as, like, as media part as she had in Thunderball, but she's very much like chocolate for the eyes. <laughs> chocolate for the eyes i like it yeah i mean whenever i think of her i immediately think of her like an all black leather like sitting on a motorcycle for like all those publicity photos but she's just yes yeah, striking redhead but also in terms of being striking in appearance henry silva i feel like he's got the, one of the perfect faces for the genre like when i think of this genre i think of people with like deep acne scars on their faces and crazed expressions and i love how henry silva goes from this kind of calm unassuming guy 
to almost like Travis Bickle by the end, like at the very end of the movie, when you see somebody being pursued by cops, it like triggers him and he's like, when he goes into like killer mode and his wife's having to like basically trying to tell him to calm down and accept that job in Canada. But I love seeing this, the transformation of his personality over the course of this film. Yeah, just again about the breakdown of uh, of an average man, you know, right? Uh, in very much the same way that Death Wish was, that we take just a regular guy and we do something awful and we see what it does to him. And Henry Silva just has one of those amazing faces where it seems like somebody stretched out, like not quite enough skin over a skull. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like a, he, they probably could have just not put makeup on him for Dick Tracy. He pops up in there and it's like, all right, well, he's already pretty weird looking like just let him just let Henry Silva be Henry Silva. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Quick conspiracy theory. Do you think that John Carpenter saw this before he made Assault on Precinct 13? Because as I was watching this, I was like, huh. Mid seventies, little girl being shot. This feels familiar. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know. Um, it's almost less shocking here than it is in Assault on Precinct Thirteen, and maybe that's because it was Kim Richards, and so we, we were expecting it less in Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Yeah, when I saw that, I, I didn't see Assault on Precinct Thirteen until I was well into my thirties, and of course, by I had very fond memories of her from a million sitcoms as a little kid, like in the late seventies, early eighties. And so when I saw, it, I was like, "Oh my god!" They'd be like shooting like Gary <laughs> Coleman in the middle of like a scene or something <laughs> like that, like or shooting Webster. Like you're just not allowed to uh, to do that. So that really caught me off guard. But when I saw it in this, like you know, she's this adorable little girl, and the um, the crook could just as easily just stroll out but he'd almost just shoots her just out of like complete and total spite for her for whatever reason but it's a great catalyst to get all the drama up and running and i love how over the course of this movie silva keeps like finding unusual alliances whether it's people who are trying to form these like underground vigilante clubs where they're just a bunch of like karate geeks who want to take the law into their own hands or this cross-dresser he teams up with in order to hunt down and keep tabs on all the various bad guys. And I just love how it really throws you into the deep end of the pool with the the dark underbelly of criminal society in, in Italy at that time. Yeah, it's it's almost um, episodic. I mean, it, it it's following a singular narrative thread, but it's almost episodic in the way that it gets there. And that's something that I really like in a couple of Lindsay's films um, in that he's not just – following this one single thing all the way through to its logical conclusion. He's interested in some of the tangents and some of the background color, especially um, in the tough ones where it's almost like, like the first half hour dirty Harry, where it's just like one situation after another, We're like, Oh, this is almost like different chapters in his life, but it takes a long time for the, the bad guy, dirty Harry to really truly emerge as the focus of the movie for a long time. She's like, dirty Harry's getting a guy off a building, dirty Harry's looking in windows, dirty Harry's stopping a bank robbery. And it's like, but they're, they're all loosely unconnected events. Yeah. And the tough ones does that in a big, big way. Yeah. Um, and this movie again is all in the pursuit of finding the daughter's killer, but it is willing to go down some of these other smaller rabbit holes, which I really, really like. And of course, you get the final irony that you, he's, the whole time he's been looking for this guy with the scorpion uh, or scorpion mark. We're not quite sure if it's a bracelet or a tattoo or whatever, but as it turns out, he kills a bunch of bad guys, but they weren't even like the right bad guys. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's like just violence begets violence, and it's like let chaos reign. And uh, what do you know about? Enzo G. Castellari's Street Law, because I read maybe on IMDb that Umberto Lenzi stated he just wanted to make this movie against 
Enzo G. Castellari street law, but was it like he wanted to compete against it or was it like a counterpoint or a kind of a counter argument to it? But I didn't quite understand that that reference. I'm ashamed to say that I, ha- I own a copy of it and have not yet seen it. It's in my to watch pile. I know it stars Franco Nero and I know that Castellari made it, but I've not seen it. Gotcha. Now, I don't know enough about the varying degrees of success of their careers. Who was considered the bigger director in Italy in the 70s between those two? Um, I don't think, I don't think Castellari ever had a hit at quite the same level as some of Lenzi's hits. I, I, I don't want to say for sure there are people who know much better than me, but Lenzi's big successes, I feel like were bigger than anything Castellari ever did. Gotcha. Well, let's shift gears then into one of his big old monster hits that he had with uh, Thomas Millian, The Tough Ones, a.k.a. Rome Armed to the Teeth from 1976. Don't move, anybody! This is a whole <laughs> Over against the wall! Move! You heard me! <laughs> Squads are in position, sir. Marksmen on all the rooftops. Developments? No, nothing new, sir. They're sticking to their ultimatum. So eat it. Boy, you're kidding, huh? Not in the least. Now go on, eat it. So I'll eat it. Watch. Get her, get her to shut her mouth or I'll shut it for her. Shut up, I said. Shut your mouth, you bitch. Shut up. Put a bullet in it. You know what we need to beat it? A special squad with the authorized backing of the law that can fight these bastards with freedom in their own backyard. How come you didn't knock off that son of a bitch inspector? Yeah, it would've been easy. But when I go for him, I want to be face to face. I'm gonna have that fucking son of a bitch puke with fright. Yes, and they're often valid, my dear. My God, Leo, you're so fanatical, you're blind to everything else. You're not helping very much, are you? Go ahead, Pugliana. Look, Inspector, you give me a decent break and I'll make you a deal. I'll tell you all I know about Ferrander. Let's hear it. I know where Ferrander is. What's your name, man? Theodore. Ah, Theodore, son of a whore. Good to know you. What are you doing? No! Oh, let me go! Shut up! No! Go on! Oh. I think you lost this. What's up? What's up? You're not gonna lose. Uh, don't go. Shove it up your ass. Bitches. Make it two and a half and you can touch my hump, huh? Okay? Come on, touch it. It's good luck, really, man. Thanks, anyhow. But I don't believe in those superstitions. Mm-hmm. Refusing to touch it brings bad luck. <laughs> this ain't baking powder. We've got you, Moreno. Hey, wait a minute. That stuff ain't mine. That was put there by somebody. It was planted, I tell you. You're gonna explain. Get the bastard! Go on! Oh, 
moving. Lay it on us. I feel like there's, um, in terms of like just the plot, who's in it, etc. Set the stage for this particular movie. Um, Thomas Millian, who made a handful of movies with Lindsay, um, that we could talk about at the end if you want. I have like some honorable mentions that uh, I want to bring bro, up. Lay, lay as many honorable mentions on us as you like. Okay. Um, stars as the Hunchback, who is uh, just this sort of low-level criminal. Uh, the star of the movie is Maurizio Merli who some of you may know from Sergio Martini, Martino's Menage, uh, which is a really great Western that I love that not enough people talk about. He's kind of uh, a yeah, poor man's Franco Nero, Nero who looks just like Ron Burgundy, which yeah, I feel like does, if, if yeah. you cast Will Ferrell as Ron Burgundy in this movie, it would become like the greatest comedy of all time. Like you could keep <laughs> the exact same script, but just put Will Ferrell in every scene and it would have been astonishing. But I, I have to admit, I am a big fan of uh, Mauricio Merli. I think they had him dye his hair to look more like Franco Nero. Gotcha. Um, well, Franco Nero's a handsome devil, so yeah, you can yeah. do this. And someone, I can't remember who, in one of the documentaries that I was watching, referred to him. They they say, uh, Maurizio Merli is a, is a one-note actor, but what a note, you know? Yeah. And it's true. <laughs> he's so good at doing the thing that he's asked to do in the tough ones. Um, yeah, he's this cop, uh, Leonardo Tanzi, who's just tired of all of the crime in Italy. And so he's going to clean up the streets himself. And as we alluded to earlier, there are a bunch of smaller cases and, you know, things that he has to uh, deal with. Um, but the big case leads him to the hunchback played by Thomas Millian. And it's kind of a showdown between those two. Um uh, and uh, this, I think, of all the Lindsay movies is probably my favorite. I think this is his best of the Polizia Tesci movies. Well, there's a pace that's tough to deny. And I love like the, the randomness of it. You'll be watching it and suddenly like a biker will swing by and like grab some girl's purse and it's like, boom, Inspector Tansy's off. Like it turns into like a crazy chase scene and then a crazy fight scene. And it doesn't necessarily have to do anything with like the central plot or the central storyline, but it's just all these great little vignettes where we see him getting really pissed off and beating up the bad guys. And of course, like, every familiar trope or cliche about cop movies that feels like Dirty Harry-esque, they take them all and like amplify them on steroids, like all the way up to 11, you know, like corrupt bureaucracies that are always standing in your way. Or, you know, it's just like every time there's an opportunity for it to fall back on those, they do, but they at the same time just inject them with nitroglycerin for, for maximum impact. And so don't ever blink because at any given moment, this movie can just erupt into violence. Yeah. The thing with the grabbing the purses and dragging the people, I guess that was a real thing that was happening in Italy at the time that people would drive by and grab a woman's purse and drag her along with it. Um, this movie is also written by uh, Dardano, Dardano Sacchetti. And uh, apparently it was something that like Lindsay got a script to make, didn't like it, threw it out. And he and Sacchetti basically hammered out this script in a week. And so I think that's probably why it has a little bit of an episodic feel where it's just kind of all over the place. But that's the charm of the movie now. What might have been a hindrance at the time that they were making the movie to me is what makes it such a special movie now. Um, that we get to see, you know, Tansy on all these different cases. And Maurizio Merli is like, I just think he's like a natural resource in this movie. He's so 
physical. Um, and he was a guy who did a lot Very of his passionate. own stunts. Yes. I mean, he's so intense and so physical. He did a lot of his own stunts and you can tell, I mean, that rooftop chase is so cool. <laughs> uh, I'm just such a fan of the physicality in this movie and how kind of two fisted and fierce this whole movie is. And as I was watching it, like I love how frequently Italians, whether you're talking about westerns or crime films, they'll reuse certain sound effects. Like the gunshot sounds in like the Leone films oftentimes get recycled. But same holds true with punching and kicking in these uh, police thrillers where it's like whoosh, 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 it's almost like a kung fu film. <laughs> but I love the way like they're, they're throwing body blows and throwing punches to the jaw and everything. But it's like every single punch sounds pretty much the same. But that becomes part of like the rhythm and the staccato of the uh, of the film. It makes it a ton of fun but as i was watching i was thinking like you know dardano sacchetti i always butcher the pronunciation of his name but my favorite script by him is probably new york ripper and i feel like all these movies that he was writing with Lindsay in the 70s are almost kind of a rough draft or a first pass at doing the the true deep dive into the most depraved dark just fucked up side of new york uh you know half a decade or seven years later New York Ripper, oddly enough, I've talked about this on my own site, but um, I struggled with like Italian horror for a number of years. I would see stuff and I just I couldn't wrap my head around it because so much of it didn't make sense. It was so weird and so violent for the sake of being violent. And New York Ripper is the one where it all clicked. That was the one where I was like, oh, this is great. And then I was able to go back and appreciate all of these Italian horror films and all of Argento and all of Fulci and then go down even deeper dives to, you know, Joe D'Amato and all these other uh, filmmakers. But I, it's amusing to me that New York Ripper is the one that I was like, oh, I get it because that is a fucked up movie. Yeah, well, it takes you out to the the – the, the, the farthest tip of that horrible edge or ledge over the cliff of hell in the abyss. And it's like, we're going to see how long we can hang out here before you just turn up, like the audience just turns against the film entirely. Right, right. But as someone, I've lived in New York for 12 years now, and I, feel, I can't think, I mean, you can talk about films like Taxi Driver, et cetera, but I feel like New York Ripper is just a true deep dive into this, the, the grimiest parts of the city in ways that I feel like a lot of other movies are just completely afraid to explore. Yeah, that that's a that's a hell of a movie. Um, also, a hell of a movie. The tough ones. Look at that segue back to absolutely. Talk about Th- Thomas Millian as the Hunchback. I love how we like we see him like working as a butcher, and the the version I saw had a pretty poor dubbing job uh, of him. But even so, like I, I liked. Uh, there's like a strange bit of like almost humor to the the bad ju- uh, the bad dubbing where he, at one point he hops in an ambulance to make a getaway and someone's like oh where are we going he's like in the cemetery that's where you're going and it's like shooting the guy in the back <laughs> with a machine gun but um when i think of him i always think of uh the big gun down which, yeah. which is just an absolute one of my all-time favorite westerns one of the all-time great western scores and he has such a delightful character in that but how would you compare this to some of his other performances i feel like for a long time, that's what I knew him from was The Big Gun Down and one other movie that I can't think of right now. But so I, I wasn't like super familiar with a lot of his work. And then in going deeper into Lindsay, I've seen a lot more of his work. And he the movies he made with Lindsay are so, so great. He's he's almost at another level um, than the actors around him. Like Merrily, I think, is a good foil for him because Merrily is so determined. He's very earnest. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, you know, Milian kind of chews up anybody who's around him because he's so good. Um, and he played a hunchback, not the same hunchback, but he would 
repeat the role of the hunchback in Brothers Till We Die. A is that year the one or two that later. plays twins where he had to play both parts? It is, and it's a fantastic movie. <laughs> Um, but that's the movie that broke can... their friendship. Apparently, it was so challenging shooting those scenes and using mats and then rewinding the film and having to count the frames and then shooting again. And Million was being very temperamental about which scenes she'd wear a weird, a, 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 like a fake beard versus like growing like a natural one. And uh, eventually, it just like it kind of destroyed their relationship overall. But they did seem to have their greatest commercial success while working together. So it's a shame that they had such a big falling out over that film. Yeah, I, I tend to like Million better as a villain. Although a movie that he made with Lindsay that I think is really really great is a movie called Syndicate Sadists. Uh, where he plays a character named Rambo, nice, uh, a cop who <laughs> plays by his own rules, and uh, he's a badass in that movie. But I, I tend to like him better as a villain. I really love him as the villain in this movie. The whole scene where he has to swallow the bullet is really fantastic. Absolutely. Well, we also have got uh, actress Maria Rosario Amagio in this, who would later appear in Nightmare City, which is another movie on your list. But I, I like the kind of the stock company that Umberto Lindsay was slowly but surely assembling over the course of his career. And we get an appearance by Arthur Kennedy in this movie, which, as you were mentioning earlier, is kind of a... He was kind of a, a, a Hollywood actor, you know, whose days were had. Oh, yeah, his, his best, best days, days were, were behind, behind him. him. Absolutely. Right. I mean, like he's like when you think about it at his peak, when I mean, he's doing things like he's the reporter in Lawrence of Arabia and he's absolutely incredible in, in Lawrence of Arabia. So but he still brings that same gravitas. And I noticed with the with the dub that I saw, he's dubbing his own voice. It's still dubbed, yeah. but you can tell it's dubbed by Arthur Kennedy. Right. Yeah, I'm looking at his uh, his filmography real quickly, and I guess maybe his peak would have been like the 50s with like the Desperate Hours. But I think yeah, my favorite, and he's also I, and the, I think he's, in a, he's in a TV movie of the of the Ten Commandments. But I think my my favorite has to be in Lawrence of Arabia. But obviously he had a a, a giant. I always for a while would get him and Van Heflin mixed up with their roles. Okay. <laughs> they kind of look alike. In any event, he was a, a great addition to this cast. But I just think if you like just good shoot 'em ups and if you like movies like Dirty Harry or movies that feel like Dirty Harry knockoffs, I mean, in the 70s, I have a feeling where the audiences probably shared a lot of the, I mean, some, like I know a lot of critics criticized both the Umberto Lindsay films as well as Dirty Harry as being quote unquote fascist movies. But if you are the victim of a mugging, like it's very easy to sympathize with these characters. Like I, I remember when I first moved to New York, someone said, oh, like, well, uh, a liberal is just someone like a, a, a Republican who hasn't been mugged yet. Because once you get, like, you're the victim of a violent crime, it can change your point of view on things very, very quickly. So I feel like these movies did articulate or express or tap into a lot of frustrations and rage that people were feeling at the time. And as an action movie, I just like, you know, we're getting back now, thanks to like the John Wick movies or some of the Mission Impossible movies, this appreciation for analog stunts, where now the special effect is to actually do the thing. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I love about some of these cop movies that he made in the 1970s is that you can't understand how no one died you watch these movies they you're look like really dangerous to shoot with <laughs> because like, they were just really doing all this stuff you know yeah. when the, that ambulance chase they just really took an ambulance and raced it through the streets of italy and Lindsay tells a story you know they had two actor cop cars chasing him and he was watching and then he turned around and now there were four cop cars chasing him because two actual cops started chasing and that ends up in the movie and so uh, 
they just really went and did all these things like flip cars and climb around on you get the feeling that they didn't necessarily have a lot of permission to shoot some of these scenes no absolutely like when these purse snatchers show up and they knock over a mother and a child and they haul ass away on the scooter and immediately get these great groovy tunes as uh he starts chasing him in this car he knocks him over it's a great just a great little action scene but it happens so abruptly and it's shot with so much intensity and it's almost kind of like jarring and upsetting at times like how quickly these action scenes can unfold yeah absolutely and and it's again just the notion of just you know because they didn't have the budgets to really plan these things out or to get stunt crews or to you know get proper coverage so that they could do it a, a certain way they just had to go and do it and shoot it as quick and dirty as possible and that lends the movie not only an authenticity but a real energy that is really hard to duplicate you know i think and and, and i think it's best represented by the tough ones of all of the the cop movies that he made i feel like this one has the the best energy also and this is something we rarely see in american cop movies but the, like the cop movies feel like they're always like one step away from drifting into like last house on the left like like all we just need a little bit of push of a push and it would be there like we have this really horrific savage scene where this kid and his followers gang rape this girl and tanzi ends up attacking them and then like a cop ends up shooting their leader when he tries to run over tanzi in a car but like cop movies in america just don't go to that terrain whereas if you watch a movie like contraband by lucio fulci it absolutely yeah. goes there so yeah i feel like italian cop movies they're just they're, they're they're dipping their toes into like X-rated horror territory that you only get in the 1970s. Absolutely. Well, cool. And since we've talked a little bit about horror, let's start drifting into some actual horror. Which which you, I, they both came out in 1980. So which you want to talk about first? Nightmare City or Eaten Alive? Uh, the reason I keep saying Eaten Alive exclamation mark is because there's a Toby Hooper movie by the same name without right. without the exclamation mark from 76, I believe. Right. Uh, a great Toby Hooper movie. Um, let's talk about Eating Alive because I'd rather end on a, on an up note. <laughs> so. What the hell? Shut up! Hey, you! Stop! Three homicides. Three men killed with tiny darts dipped in cobra venom. Cobra venom? bad news. I have to remind you that there are still cannibals in the southeastern jungles of New Guinea. What? <laughs> Brethren, two great perils endanger the well-being of our community. The cave dwellers hungering for our flesh and city dwellers out to enslave us. <laughs> Jonas now, you know. Keep your mouth shut. Get out of here. Mind your own damn business. Those devils want to see me locked up in a prison cell. 
but they'll never get to do it. I will not leave my people without their leader. I got him! There's somebody down there! Call me, Rocky! the only movie that you recommended whereas I was watching it I was like ugh this just went to uh, a place I don't know if I want to go there it's like you know I've seen many a strange off the beaten track you know upsetting kind of controversial film but this film even tested my depraved sensibilities where it went by the end of the film but for people out there who have not had the unique and wonderful depraved privilege of watching this movie what is the premise of Eaten Alive? Um, a woman played by Janet Agron, uh, wants to go find her sister who's gone missing in New Guinea. And so she teams up with, uh, with a guy played by Robert Kerman, as you had mentioned earlier, what was his porn name? Uh, hang on a sec. I've got it in my notes. Bam, bam, bam. Richard Bola. Richard Bola. All right. So <laughs> she teams up with Robert Kerman and they go into the jungles where they find, um, uh, basically a cult which is being run by a guy named Jonas, played by Lindsay regular Ivan Rasimov. Yeah, who was also in the previous one we discussed. Right. Um, and uh, and then some cannibals show up and fuck things up. And then everybody drinks poison and dies. And so you get kind of part cannibal film and part Jonestown film. Um, That's the crazy I, thing. Like the, the cult and like the Jonestown scenario, they're terrifying, but they're not the most terrifying people in this movie. But there's like a strange, like childlike innocence to the cannibals, if that makes any sense. Like it's almost like they don't even know what they're doing might be considered, you know, offensive to other people. Like they just kind of, they just kind of go about it because that's their way of life. But this movie was kind of overwhelming where it would have been just fine to make a cannibal movie or a cult movie, but they give you two in one. Right. I, I felt like... This this wouldn't be one of my favorite Lenzi movies, but I felt like if we're going to talk about Umberto Lenzi, we kind of have to talk about his cannibal cycle, uh, which included basically three films. It included The Man from Deep River, it included this, and then it included Cannibal Ferox. And of the three, this is the one that I like the most. I feel like because and it's by he far the most shocking. Like I don't think uh, Campbell Frox might be a huge hit, but I think uh, this one destroys it in terms of over, overall shock value, just because of the weird combination of eroticism with cannibalism at the end, where you have these exquisitely beautiful girls who are still alive while they're being eaten. Like I just was recoiling in horror and just feeling like, yeah, it, it, they were cringe-inducing, bile-inducing graphics. 
it was worse than I even remembered because I rewatched it today. And when we get to the scene again, spoilers, I guess, for Eden Alive, exclamation point, uh, where they're like using sticks as rib spreaders. It, I was like, oh, shit, this is more hardcore than I even remember it being. This is this is hard to watch. Um, yeah, when people talk about video nasties, like in, like banned movies and that sort of thing from the late 70s or early 80s, this is in that conversation. Like, I mean, I, as a kid, I would go down the video rack, and anytime I saw one of these advertising slogans like banned in 100 countries or banned in 13 states, I'm like, woohoo, that's, like, that's going, um, we're watching that tonight. And most of the time, that they were pretty tame and it was just, it was all hype. But Eaten Alive totally lives up to the hype. <laughs> well, for me, The Man from Deep River is a little bit too dry to use, maybe the wrong word, but uh, it's a little bit stiff, I think, as a, especially as a cannibal movie. It's, it's probably a better made movie. Um, and it also stars Ivan Rasimov. Um, but, uh, and, and, and Cannibal Ferox to me, you had mentioned earlier in the show that, uh, he had made it basically for commercial reasons. He needed a hit. And I feel that when I watch Cannibal Ferox, you know, it feels like one of those times where he was chasing a trend, even though he had started the trend, he essentially made the first cannibal movie with the man from deep river, but cannibal Holocaust had come out. And so you can kind of feel him trying to one up cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, the scenes that work best in Cannibal Ferox is the the actual like documentary scenes of like snakes eating monkeys, or whatever the case may be. But like the cannibal scenes don't really do that much for me. Even like when people are being castrated and all that kind of stuff. What really gets to me in Cannibal Ferox is just how many scenes from nature you see, and you're just like, oh damn. Yeah. Like yeah. when you see just like a little like um this little creature being tied up for an anaconda to eat, and he's like crying out pitifully as uh as it as it dies, and so or people chopping up alligators for supper, and it's so the, the real life violence really disturbs me, but the cannibalism in Cannibal Rocks is nothing, but it's in fucking Eaten Alive, which is very appropriately titled because you're, they're alive and moaning and screaming as little bits and pieces are being pulled off of them. And you're seeing like, you know, that these, once again, that Paola Senatore, she was in a million like softcore erotic films in the 70s. She's an exquisitely beautiful Italian goddess. So to see these people just casually eating her just makes you fly into a rage. Moments after she's raped by cult members. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's, there are no words to describe <laughs> what a bad uh, hand of cards she has dealt at the end of this film. It's so unfortunate that, and obviously I'm not the first person to say that, that the animal violence is, for some reason, goes hand in hand with the cannibal subgenre. Um, I don't exactly know why that is. I've heard arguments in favor of it before. Um, and it, they're good arguments, but it is it makes it, you know, because I can watch a special effect of somebody being eaten. I have no problem with that. Yeah, but it's when just, I'm it's actually, just red on a canvas. Right. When I'm watching them actually murder an alligator and cut it open while it's still writhing around, it's it's really tough to watch. Yeah, I think – if you were to try and make a case for it, you could say, oh, well, by seeing real violence, then perhaps it helps the illusion of the fake violence feel like, like it feels more compelling or it's easier to sell it. But once again, like I can watch anything on a canvas and I'm totally fine. But if I go into a hospital and I, open, and I look into like an open door and see something happening, I'm going to swoon and probably faint. Like I cannot handle real right. life trauma of any kind. And I'm more than capable of keeping real life and my imagination separate. So yeah, I agree. When you collide the two together, 
it's really fucking strange, especially like just like scenes like when the the natives are like devouring all these like disgusting green snakes from this like filthy fucking pond. Like I was like, what am I watching? This is just <laughs> so goddamn gross. But then it would be kind of uh, in juxtaposition to that you'd have these astonishing sequences where Janet Agron is like painted in gold and being worshipped like a goddess by the cult leader. And so you get all these conflicting, very intense visceral emotions. Yeah, and I, I guess that's what I respond to in Eaten Alive is that it, it's a movie that's trying to be more than one thing. Um, and I think his other two cannibal films are content to just kind of be the one thing. And this movie, like some of the other movies we were talking about, it doesn't follow digressions necessarily, but it is interested in being more one, more than one thing. Sometimes, you know, for some people, I'm sure to the film's detriment, because I'm sure I know when the movie came out, there was a lot of pushback against the Jonestown stuff as just being exploitation and kind of a, you know, a cash in on the Jonestown thing and that it had no business in this movie. But I guess if you're saying that, then what you're saying is more of the movie should have just been rape and cannibals. Like uh, the Jonestown stuff at least gives us a break and it uh, affords us, uh, you know, a pretty interesting charismatic performance by Ivan Rasimov as the cult leader um, and and speaks to one of the things that I think some cannibal movies do well. In a different way, which is, you know, you look at something like Cannibal Holocaust, which for me is the best of all the cannibal movies. Yeah, it's the Susan Cain of cannibal flicks. If It is. <laughs> yeah, and, not that they're like a whole, whole lot to choose from, but that is, that's the big <laughs> one. <laughs> and one of the things that that movie does so well is it points the finger back at the Americans and says like, but look, it's, it's you people who are the real monsters, right? Yep. Um, like and, like like when we taught scalping to the Native Americans, like people are like, oh, I don't want to get scalped by an Indian. But it's like, well, guess who taught them that? Because they right. were selling the scalps for money. So right, right. Um, and this movie kind of goes about it in a different way, where it still talks about mankind's propensity for horror and violence, um, without having to do the exact same things that something like Cannibal Holocaust does. So we still get. You know, the the the, the cult leader in this case, Jonas is the real monster of the film because as you said, the cannibals don't know any better. They're, yeah, they're just very acting childlike. according to their nature. Yeah, they're right. terrifying, but it's like, it'd be like if you were lying on the ground and you got eaten alive by like fucking caterpillars. Like the caterpillars aren't evil, but they're just, they're just doing what's in their nature. It's like what, what, what they do. And also like, all the cult stuff is very topical because it was 1978 where you had the Jim Jones people's temples cult where they committed this mass suicide where 900 people died. So yeah, the fact that you have a movie coming out two years after that, I feel like it's the perfect time. If you're going to cash in on a topic or a craze, like obviously this is uh, is very appropriate. Yeah. And I know there were a handful. Uh, I haven't seen them. I know there were a handful of like Jonestown exploitation movies. I haven't seen any of them. This is probably the only one that I've seen, with the exception of the one that Ty West did a couple of years ago. Uh, this is the only movie that I've seen to directly kind of address Jonestown. Well, uh, uh, what do you think of the fake dubbed Southern accents for Janet Agron and Paola <laughs> Senator? Because I, you know, I, I grew up in North Carolina, Virginia. I'm familiar with Southern accents and. Movies in general tend to get them wrong, but Janet Agron's like Swedish and Paolo Senatore obviously is Italians, but for whatever reason, it just was, uh, it was a, actually a perfect kind of relief from the filth of the movie having these ridiculous dubbed Southern <laughs> accents because they just became so unintentionally comic throughout the uh, the entire flick. Yeah, I adore the dubbing in Italian movies. I will always watch one, even if there's a subtitle option. 
in any other genre, in any other uh, case, I would be choosing subtitles and watching a film in its an original language. But when it comes to these Italian genre movies, I will always go dubbing because for me, that's part of the charm. And so, yes, their ridiculous southern accents is they're from another planet. But again, it's just part of this movie's like stew of insanity. Now, I'm looking at my notes for this movie and it's funny, like my notes could almost be like, uh, I should probably post these on Twitter or something because everything on note is me going like, whoa, blood bubbling out of small alligator seven head. Fuck me. Monkey's being attacked by a massive snake. Fuck me. Pretty girl gets a close ripped <laughs> off and then she's eaten by the locals. But it's like constant like horror and shock. And yeah, holy shit. Janet Akron painted gold, total goddess. But it's just like every single comment I have is like, you can tell it's it's making an impact or it's having a or fuck me dead. Iguana being carved open and skinned. Like it just keeps going and going. But it's like most movies, if they're lucky, if they have like one of these scenes, but this movie's got like two dozen where you're just like, oh, oh. <laughs> like, I don't know if I wanted to see that. <laughs> yeah. Again, I kind of forgot how intense uh, some of it was um, because I was remembering the animal stuff as being the stuff that for me was hard to watch. But as I rewatched, you know, kind of the the money sequence of this movie where Mimi Lay and, and Paola. Uh, oh, Mimi Senna, Lay. Senna. She is such a goddess. I was just in, I mean, admittedly she gets put through the ringer in this movie in a lot of ways. However, prior to the unfortunate things that befall her character, she's just such an absolute goddess. I was, I was having a lot of fun and I had to immediately look her up online to see what, what other stuff she did. But yeah, she, she was a great addition to the cast. She was, uh, she's also in man from deep river. So if you want to see a slightly less intense cannibal movie from Umberto Lenzi starring Ivan Rasimov and Mimi Lay, you can check out the man from deep river. That's more of like a, almost like a national geographic special. Gotcha. Okay. Fair enough. Now, before we get into your last selection, any comments about cannibal for obviously that's probably, I think for a lot of people who've never seen any of his movies, perhaps the movie that they're most likely to have heard of, um, any thoughts on how it compares favorably or unfavorably to eaten alive? Um, I'm not the biggest fan of Cannibal Ferox. I would probably need to rewatch it um, before I could really comment it on comment on it with any authority. Um, I know I, I originally saw it shortly after Cannibal Holocaust, and it really felt like, oh, this is just a bad imitation. This is just this is a diluted version. Yeah, yeah, trying to be shocking. You know. Um, yeah, I enjoyed the bad guy in it just because he's such a complete scumbag cokehead from the word go that just every opportunity he has to be just a horrible human being he takes that takes that path but he does get castrated and he gets like the top of his uh the top of his head chopped off and stuff like that so he gets what's coming to him and i guess i was enjoying watching just how completely unapologetically evil he was but i so that was the first movie that i watched while well, just trying to get my feet wet with Umberto Lindsay, just because I'd, I'd been hearing about it for so long. But as soon as, as, soon as I saw Eaten Alive, I was like, oh shit, well, Eaten Alive, that is the, you know, the holy grail of provocative entertainment in his filmography yeah. that I've seen so far. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. Information from an official source, which reached our newsroom this afternoon, stresses the seriousness of the situation. (laughs) 
Something very serious has happened at the airport. But until we conclude our investigation and take the necessary countermeasures, nothing is going to leak out. Nothing. Last night I had this nightmare. It was all about my leg. It was a big explosion. It was right here in the hospital. I got hit. My leg got cut off. Well, we don't have to worry over that any longer. Jim, your leg's going to be just fine. Yes? This is Civil Defense Headquarters. General Murchison would like you to come down here right away. Now! <gasps> and others like him have been subjected to strong doses of atomic radiation which increase their physical capacities beyond the norm. In short, it's a kind of a Superman. This is Channel 5 TV station. We're being attacked. For God's sakes, send somebody fast. The victims of these creatures are contaminated, even if they only suffer minor injuries. Then they can reproduce themselves, Colonel, say, indefinitely? We'll be completely on our own. We'll simply have to declare a state of emergency ourselves. Or before we all become contaminated, just like them. like this happen it's part of the vital cycle of the human race create and obliterate until we destroy ourselves special commando units positioned at all strategic points in and around the city public buildings offices and businesses alike have been ravaged and damage is estimated in the hundreds of thousands general hospital has been hit the hardest Many have been seriously injured and hundreds of lives have been lost, with the end still not in sight. My God, Sheila, what's going on? I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> Dino, I don't want us to die. They're all around us, everywhere, everywhere. God help us all. All right, well, let's get into the, the last one, the movie that a lot of people say is the first movie to introduce the idea of sprinting zombies, if you wish to qualify these characters as zombies. But we have Nightmare City from 1980, starring the great Hugo Stieglitz, the Nanos, <laughs> resurrected for Inglorious Bastards. Uh, so lay it on us. For people who out there who think they know a lot about zombie movies, but they've never seen Nightmare City, give us the gist of what this is all about. Um, basically just, uh, a zombie. It's not even technically a zombie outbreak. It's like an infection outbreak that takes place, uh, in Europe where, um, a TV station is then overrun. Uh, Hugo Stiglitz is a, a reporter 
an American reporter who's trying to cover the story basically. And it's, it's basically just, uh, you know, an infection zombie movie, um, that I first saw, I think after seeing when I saw Grindhouse back in 2007, I, I really, I really had liked it. And that was a movie that sent me down a path of exploitation. Um, and one of the movies that kept getting name checked was, well, if you liked planet terror, you should really check out nightmare city. Because that's the obvious inspiration for Planet Terror. Um, so I did. And this was still when I was like struggling a little bit with Italian cinema. And I was like, so they're just going to have him like eat a woman's boob for no reason. <laughs> and now I'm like, yeah, they're going to have a, <laughs> a monster eat a woman's boob for no reason. Of course, that's going to be part of it. Uh, but at the time, I was a, a bit more perplexed by it. Um, what do you think is like the tipping point for helping people get into Italian genre film? Because there definitely is that weird tipping point. And maybe it just boils down to you need to have that one great, quintessentially fantastic movie-going experience. And then you're hooked. Because I think for a lot of people, maybe there, there's just so much of it and it's so overwhelming. They don't even know where to get started. But if you were to try and like make the case for why people should do the deep dive on Italian genre films like this, like what is the catalyst or the best way to kind of get started down that path? Just as a, as a quick aside before we get into the meat of this movie. I would think some sort of giallo might be the way to go. And I would almost recommend something like Tenebrae um, because it's so well-directed and the music is so cool and the plot is so interesting and there's so many twists. I think there's enough to interest somebody even who has no interest in these kinds of movies. And there's a, it's, there's a long walk from Tenebrae to Nightmare City, but I yeah. think you could get there eventually. Yeah, I guess like if you – like I would think maybe something like uh, Profondo Rosso or something like that. But like some of the slightly classier ones or – what was the one that Mario Bava made with that masked figure that almost looks like Rorschach from Watchmen? Um, totally blanking. Uh, Blood and Black Lace. Yeah. But I feel like some of those ones where – the colors are so rich and the music's so brassy and just the overall the overall aesthetic is just so stimulating that you fall in love with that over the top hallucinatory quality of Italian cinema because nobody tackles these genres in such a delirious fashion and this like to the same degree as the Italians, and I, I don't know what the hell was in the water at the time. I guess maybe you can make a case for Japan going through similar a similar craze but with different sensibilities at roughly the same period. But I feel yeah, once you get hooked, then it's like you just feel this almost panic, like, oh my God, like there's so fucking many of these movies out there. Like, how am I ever gonna find time to see all these movies? And yeah, I've been running this podcast now for five and a half years. And during that time, I've seen the most of the Italian genre films that I've ever seen in my life. And I feel like I've barely started the journey. And I, <laughs> it's like a, every time I think I've got like a, a firm grasp on things, I'm like, oh, well, have you seen Joe D- D'Amato's films? Like he's got like 170. You're like, oh my right. God, like wh- when is this journey gonna end? <laughs> and you know, so many of them are hard to come by too, because we are limited to the ones that we have access to in the United States. Um, you had mentioned, you know, some of Lucio Fulci, Lucio Fulci's filmography earlier. And like, I would love to see some of Fulci's early comedies, but there's just no way to see them. You know, there's, uh, unless, you know, I go to Italy and can find a 16 millimeter print or something like that. There's just no way to see those films from prior to like 1970. 
Um, but yeah, it is so exciting to go down this rabbit hole and to keep discovering there's more and more and more. Yeah, I've started to dangle my feet over the water of dabbling in uh, softcore Italian erotica from the 70s. I'm trying to figure out which country did it better, France or Italy? Because there's a strong case to be made for different filmmakers from both like Jean Rolin versus like, um, like Tinto Brass or people like that. It's like there's so many like great directors to kind of hit your wagon to but it's almost like if you start exploring softcore Italian erotica it's like yet another ocean of content it's like oh my god right. there's like thousands of them like I, I can't even like, <laughs> I can't even like rip off that bandaid because I, then the journey will never end but let's get back to uh, Nightmare City so, but what I loved is how this movie has this like wonderful framing device where you have this plane full of irradiated psychos going berserk and you have this crazy adventure story and then the whole movie kind of comes full circle at the end. It basically like kind of leaves you wondering like, well, did we watch, did what we see actually happen? And then you get this great little title card that it says the nightmare becomes reality. And I was like, what the fuck did I just watch? Like, <laughs> how, how do you interpret this interesting framing device of this plane full of irradiated psychos? Yeah, I think he's saying basically that what we saw play out was sort of a dream of what's to come. Um, and that the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is not the movie to watch during these times as a plane full of infected people just comes running off the tarmac onto the tarmac and attacking. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, one of the things that I really responded to in a movie like The Tough Ones is that Lindsay makes some of his best movies feel like greatest hits reels where everything in it is it's just the good stuff. He cut out all the bullshit. And he's just left the good stuff. And I feel like Nightmare City is that version of a zombie movie where it's like he cut out all the bullshit except for maybe the twist ending. If you're not a fan of the twist ending, I don't blame you. Um, but he cut out all the bullshit and he left just the good stuff. And Nightmare City is like 90 minutes of good stuff. Uh, the idea of fast moving zombies, again, it was new in 1980. And I find it genuinely scary i find it a lot scarier than the slow moving romero zombies yeah when you've got a room full of things that are basically shambling along like it reminds me of the scene in dawn of the dead where like um oh goddamn what's the name of the actor slash special effects um maestro Tom exactly yeah Tom, Tom Savini when he shows up and they're just running through and like pushing people over or killing them but like it basically it's like you know, shooting fish in a barrel, like it's not that scary unless you're completely overwhelmed and have insufficient supplies or ammo or whatever. Like when I first saw 28 Days Later, it gave me a goddamn panic attack, like during the initial <laughs> scenes when you have like a human wave attack of these insane people running after you. So hey, once again, 28 Days Later owes a huge debt of gratitude to Nightmare City because once again, 28 Days Later, they were not zombies. They had the rage virus, which is kind of a similar thing. Right. And same with the uh, the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead remake, which is essentially Nightmare City in a mall. Yeah, absolutely. They basically took Dawn of the Dead and they said, oh, well, 28 days later, people seem to like them fast. So let's make them fast. And yeah, yeah. I, I mean, but then again, I do every once in a while like just a good old fashioned classic zombie scenario. I think my favorite maybe classic zombie scenario might be Day of the Dead by Romero when they're in the, the military bunker. For whatever reason, that just really works for me. So I, I'm, I'm, I've got room in my heart. I'm, I'm kind of burnt out on zombies at this point. We just had too many zombie shows and movies over the last 20 years. However, 1980, this was the great heyday of the really, really good ones 
whether you're talking about Italy or America. So I, I loved getting to step back into this world. And for me, I think the creepiest scene was probably in the hospital when the lights go out and the nurse is bumping into infected people in the dark and you yeah. have all these, like this creepy music. I was like, woo, this <laughs> is kind of finding that special groove where it starts to get really eerie and powerful. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm with you. I love all kinds of – I'm burned out on zombies, but I love, love, love Romero's movies. I didn't mean to make it sound like I prefer this to those. Um, but, you know, again, I like that Lindsay, rather than just following a trend, is bringing something new to the genre. He's saying, OK, I'm going to make a zombie movie, but I'm going to make my zombie movie. And my zombie movie is going to be a little bit different. Uh, they're going to be infected. They're not going to be you know, undead. They're going to be – they're going to move fast. Um, they're going to, you know, break into an aerobic studio. They're going <laughs> to, they're going to, I mean, uh, that scene almost got into like murder rock territory and depending oh, yeah. on who you talk to, some people think murder rock's the best movie ever made. Some people think it's the worst. And I think it somehow manages to be both at the same time. But <laughs> the, 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 that, that show was like, wow. All right. This is like a, a warm up for murder rock a couple of years later. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, no, it's I love the whole sequence with the with the infected in the TV studio. Um, that whole sequence is amazing, and I love all the stuff at the end in the amusement park. There's something so creepy about an abandoned amusement park, and you know, just climbing up the roller coaster. Um, I think is so. I think that you know the movie lives up to its name. I think it's genuinely nightmarish. I think there are nightmares that I've had that probably feel a lot like this movie. Um, and yes, it's kind of schlocky and yes, it's pretty cheap and the makeup isn't always great. You know, none of that shit matters to me. Yeah. This is what gives schlock a good name. Yeah, exactly. I'm responding to the energy of it and the ideas that are present in it. Yeah. When they're on the roller coaster and they're shooting and they're basically like waiting for this helicopter to come in. And of course they do get saved, but Anna, how she, she, I mean, everybody's worst nightmare. You can't hang onto the rope and your grip is failing. Right. And no, but it's like when she falls, it's not like it just cuts to black. You see her bouncing off all the steel poles and all the way down. It's like, God (laughs) damn, they really make you kind of appreciate every little detail as she plummets to her death. But of course then Dean wakes up and it's all been this big elaborate nightmare but also one of the things I love in this it reminded me a little bit of some of the, the the fight scenes in the cop movies where suddenly like the doctors in the hospital are all like really good at hand-to-hand combat and like when they like they're punching <laughs> it's like whoosh, 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 whoosh. but it's like I loved how, how everybody seemed to be like training on the side with uh, you know martial arts instructors just in case there ever is a radioactive fast-running zombie outbreak <laughs> And it turned out they were right. See, that all that practice was not in vain. Luck is when opportunity meets preparation, as they say. <laughs> um, Hugo Stiglitz is not my favorite Lindsay lead, but he's serviceable, I think, in the movie. Yeah, I think if you were to go back and get the ideal perfect casting, you could not look for – you shouldn't look any further than Mauricio Murley. He would have been the perfect leading man for this movie. Well, no zombie would have stood a chance against exactly. Him. He would have, you know, barely rolled out of bed before they would have all just <laughs> fallen and, you know, fallen in droves. Well, yeah, I, I'd never seen this. I never even heard of this prior to you recommending it, and I had an absolute blast uh, checking it up. But maybe now's the time to start because he's had this remarkable, lengthy, incredible career. Counting down some of your favorite honorable mentions because I feel like for every movie that we discussed, his diehard fans. Because I mean, I'm very new to his filmography. His diehard fans are like, oh my. God, how are you ignoring this or how are you overlooking that? So now is that opportunity to save us from the wrath of people like Tony Stella, who probably know these movies really, really well, who are going to call into question our uh, which films we chose to place special emphasis on. So what are your favorite movies that, by him that we have not discussed today? 
Um, there are some that I'm sure I will miss because there are some movies I didn't get a chance to visit. I'm still in the process of tracking down some of his filmography. Um, but there's a, a movie called Gang War in Milan that's really good. That's, I think, Ivan Rasimov again, uh, which is basically just about these two warring mafia families, basically, uh, and very much about you know what it was like to live in Italy at that time. Uh, the aforementioned Brothers Till We Die with Thomas Millian in a dual role as uh, one guy with a hunchback and one guy with a glorious perm. Nice. Always down uh, for a perm. Perm gives you special points. <laughs> What's the one where there's a scene where you have nude women hanging from a hook in the ceiling? Because in the interview that I watched with them, he was referring to the shooting of that scene. It was one of his cop movies, but I, did, I didn't. I thought it might be almost human, but I didn't catch it at the time while watching it. I believe that's Almost Human, which is next okay. on my list. Yeah, gotcha. another great another great Thomas Millian uh, villain performance. And a, the cop is played by Henry Silva. Perfect. Um, so that one's almost as good as the tough ones. And if I had to swap one out on this list, that's the one that I would swap out. I like the tough ones a little bit more, but Almost Human is really great and really, really dark. I mean, it's a mean-spirited movie. Well, I, I don't mind the dark side. Of, I mean, it's, weird, it's a weird thing where... And I, I mean, I mentioned this often on the podcast, but the older I get, the less preoccupied I am with watching just kind of casual movies that reinforce your complacency. I need a little extra salt or I need a little extra flavor to kind of remind me that I'm, I'm getting like a proper movie going experience. So I'm, if a movie like while eaten alive kind of upset me in certain ways, I will always defer to the movies that get an actual genuine, genuine emotional response because I feel like in the end, that's what movie making is all about. It's like that heightened sense of experience and emotion that really gets a jolt out of you. Otherwise like, why are we watching movies in the first place? Right. Right. Uh, syndicate sadists, which I had mentioned earlier, that's the movie where Thomas Millian plays a cop named Rambo. Uh, but that's a really good one. Um, he made a giallo called Eyeball that's very much worth checking out in which the killer goes through and not only murders everyone but cuts out one of their eyes. Uh, and that's one of my favorite of all his jolly. Um, I'm going to have to see Orgasmo, A, just because I love the name, but the, the poster art for it. I'm a big fan of uh, hand-drawn illustration and art and for movies and that sort of thing. And the poster for Orgasmo with Carol Baker sitting there with like a martini with one girl on her shoulder and one guy on the other shoulder, basically both putting the moves on her at once. It just looks very uh, titillating. Yeah, I desperately need to track down a good copy of that. I wish I could have seen it before this one. but um, And then he's got a couple uh, just – outliers that almost don't belong to any genre uh, certainly not any of the genres that he was working in uh one is called iron master which is sort of uh is that one of his spaghetti war movies as tarantino likes to describe no it's not it's like a weird uh almost sword and sandal movie meets quest for fire meets conan uh it's kind of a barbarian movie uh, but it's it's a fucking trip. It's it's really interesting. Uh, it's not but, great, but well. Speaking of some of his uh, spaghetti war movies, I've not seen any, but I know Tarantino is a big fan of uh, Umberto Lindsay. What are the essential spaghetti war movies in his filmography, or the most popular? 
I couldn't say, unfortunately. I haven't seen any of them. Because I'm looking at his ID. There's one called Bridge to Hell from 1986, which is about Nazis. I don't know if that's considered one of his essentials or not, but I imagine it's probably a strong contender. But I know that he was very proud of his war movies. He made one with John Huston and Henry Fonda when they're both getting pretty long in the tooth, and he had to shoot it in L.A. because they couldn't travel because they weren't weren't well enough. But he claims that on the set— John Huston claimed that Umberto Lindsay was the better director of the two of them. I don't know if I believe Interesting. That, but that was what at least what John Huston told him to his face while they were shooting the film. Um, yeah, no, I that's one of those areas that I need to uh, bone up quite a bit because I haven't seen any of the Spaghetti War movies. Yeah, here's a uh, oh yeah, Violent Naples looks like another cop flick. That's yeah, another so, one I couldn't track down. Yeah, so I think the '80s was probably his more of his um, his Spaghetti War movie period. But once again, it's just like I just I love having giant largely intact filmographies left for me to discover. But if you were to c- come up with like your top five kind of favorite obscure off the beaten track Italian genre filmmakers. Because like the, what are like the gateway drugs for people out there who have never seen any, like when they think of Italian film, they only think of Fellini and Rosalini and Antonioni and they're all marvelous filmmakers. But it's like, if someone is like, I, I want to get into Italian genre film, what is the Patrick J. Bromley kind of essential guide to the masters of these, uh, these subgenres? Oh gosh. Um, Lindsay would be at the top of that list because I just feel like he's he's almost like the Howard Hawks of exploitation in the in that he worked in so many different genres but sort of brought his own stamp to everything that he did um, and elevated everything that he did you know um, Sergio Martino would be on that list um, obviously I'm a big Lucio Fulci fan so he would be on that list as well gosh. Uh, you know, if you're a crime movie fan, you could do way worse than Ferdinand DeLeo. And what would be another one? Shit, I don't know. Now, I have yet to start my journey through the career of Joe D'Amato, but it, I feel like because he made primarily a kind of softcore erotic movies that I'm going to probably like at least uh, a handful. Do you have any recommendations of uh, from his filmography? Because I've been I've been thinking about and like wanting to do the deep dive on his movies for years at this point now, and I don't know why I've been so hesitant to do so. But I, I just like sometimes I like the idea of saving a, a, a big filmmaker for for later. But have you seen any of his stuff? I know I have. Um, I'm trying to pull up his filmography now. Yeah, he has a, someone else with like a very similar sp- uh, spelling of his name, who's very a di- very very different filmmaker. But and also he worked under a lot of pseudonyms at times as well. So sometimes yeah. it's hard to figure out which movies are even his. Okay, he's, he's actually really hard to look up on yeah, uh, on I'm, IMDb. I'm struggling right now. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a handful of his movies. Um, Anthropophagus, I know, is one that I think... I've seen mostly his more like horror films and not really a lot of like softcore or even the hardcore porn stuff that he did. He has an insane list of credits, by the way. Yeah, he's got like like 200 200 movies. Um, Absurd is is kind of a decent uh, like... Halloween ripoff. Um, Beyond the Darkness is a horror film that I think is worth seeing. Um, that's a that's a very 
that's a fucked up movie. Um, now, quick philosophical question for you. Right now, do you think there is a modern day equivalent of all these Italian genre films being made anywhere in the world where like, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now when diehard film freaks are looking back at this period, are going to say, oh my God, at that time, this country was just had this like this ocean of genre fair going on that the world didn't really appreciate at the time, so on and so forth. Like, do you see a modern day equivalent? Or are we really talking about just like an isolated moment in time that was just a really special time to be a movie fan? Yeah, unfortunately, I think it's the latter. I don't think that there's any, I don't think there's any country in the world right now that has a scene like what Italy had uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, um, uh, or or even you know like the the Philippines had in the 1970s, or yep. you know the the golden age of exploitation. Or... Right, exactly. Uh, seems to have passed, and we have certainly lots of low budget movies being made now. Um, but they aren't, the spirit isn't quite the same. Um, and, and I don't think they could be localized to a specific country or anything like that. Not, not anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. Cause I feel like, you know, I, I remember listening to an interview one time with Tarantino and he said something very wise about how one of the reasons that he's gone back and watched so many just bizarre, obscure films is that he never likes to accept the idea that the official canon is kind of finished or complete that all the good movies have basically been categorized and collated and everybody and basically if you if you want to look up the official list of all the essential movies that it's like all the gems have been discovered and he just refuses to buy that there's always like frontiers to explore and new filmmakers to discover who are either forgotten or neglected and i would like to believe as somebody who watches a lot of film and television that i would do a pretty good job of keeping an eye on things but things slip through my fingers all the time. Like just the other day, someone sent a recommendation to me where a movie had been made available online from South Korea called, oh my God, I'm, oh my God, I can't, I'm totally <laughs> blanking on it. It's called like The Little Witch, uh, wait, The Witch Subversion. And it's basically like a superhero action movie from South Korea that came out in Korea 2018, but it wasn't available in America online until um, about a week ago. And it's some of the most insane, brutal, R-rated superhero action that I've ever seen. And uh, clearly, it has escaped my nose for like the last year and a half. And so I always like to believe I'm throwing out a big, giant fishnet. But hopefully, maybe 20, 30, 40 years from now, a bunch of people who maybe haven't even been born yet will look at this period and alert us to all these wonderful, beautiful things that we've been overlooking or ignoring. Because I don't want to believe that like the, the great heyday of genre filmmaking is over. But when you look at how rich Italy was during this period, it's hard not to feel like we kind of missed this great era just by virtue of having not been born yet when all this was going down. Yeah, for sure. But again, we're fortunate that there is kind of a revival movement for these kinds of movies. And there are people who are curating uh, movies on boutique labels and saying like, oh, this is worth checking out and this is worth seeing. And so we get a lot of the smaller physical media labels, um, you know, kind of curating some of these insane movies that I get to check out now. And, you know, mentioning South Korea, that's probably the closest, I think that we have right now to a scene where it's like, yeah, almost anything that's coming out of that country is really interesting and worth seeing. 
Yeah, I'm very excited about South Korea. Sadly, not about Hong Kong. Hong Kong in the 80s and 90s was just so remarkable. But now with the Chinese financing and Chinese censorship, that whole film culture has really taken a, a, a huge impact. Japan still got a lot of cool stuff going on, but I always like to feel like there's like some place in the world, like even like in Ghana, they're starting to make action movies and genre films and things like that. And so, cool, uh, yeah, it's like uh, so. I feel like there's always some new, new terrain. That I guess what it boils down to is you have to have a film culture that is hell bent upon making a profit as opposed to making statements. And I feel like that's where you really get the great genre films thriving is when there was erotic right. films, horror films, war films, whatever. But the goal is just to make them inexpensively and make money and move on to the next one as fast as humanly possible. And that's when you get all these happy accidents. And uh, yeah, I, I feel I, at least I hope there will always be an equivalent of that somewhere in the world at any given time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in the interim, after people have heard this episode, where can people find you online? Where can people hear your show? Where can people read your writing? Give us the uh, kind of the play-by-play cliff notes of everything that Patrick Bromley does uh, in the world of film. Uh, I mean, you can read some of my writing over at Daily Dead and Bloody Disgusting, but the majority of my writing is happening at fthismovie.com. And you can find our podcast every Wednesday at fthismovie.com, or you can subscribe, you know, anywhere you get your podcasts, iTunes or Spotify or any of those places. Um, and we're somewhere in the 500s now. So there's a big backlog of shows you can go back and listen Very to. Very nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm editing my episode 500 right now as we speak. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a long journey need to get there but it's been a lot of fun but hopefully yeah, well, I'll find it find it in my system to crank out 500 more because I, I really enjoy doing these podcasts because it gives me a chance to meet fellow firm, film freaks like yourself who know a lot more about particular topics and filmmakers than I do so thanks so much for pitching the Umberto Lenzi topic and thanks so much for introducing me to so many wild movies that's awesome thank you so much for being willing to go down this path with me oh yeah dude like anytime you got a strange topic or a strange filmmaker or a strange path that you want to explore I am game awesome Excellent. Well, we hope you all enjoyed this episode. Definitely check out Umberto Lenzi's content. I think you'll be happily surprised. And if you're an old veteran, definitely give me a shout on Twitter at Colbrex and let me know which ones you find most essential to be rediscovered. But if you want more content, you can always find my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. But we can't thank you enough for listening. Hope you really enjoyed it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.